Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to On the Ball with Rick Buecher. Here's your host. Let's send it over to Rick Buecher. Rick Buecher. This is On the Ball on the United Recast Network, and I am Rick Buecher. You can see me on FS1, hear me on Fox Sports Radio, and you can read me on the Fox Sports app and at foxsports.com. You can also follow me on both Twitter and Instagram at Rick Buecher. I'm a lot of places, but there's only one place you can hear me talking about story angles and perspectives that you are not likely to find anywhere else, primarily but not exclusively involving the NBA, and that is here. It's taken me a minute to get this episode out because, as a friend of mine likes to say, life got lifey. And so, as a result of my TV responsibilities, I've moved down to L.A., at least temporarily, until we put this NBA season to bed sometime in July. Now, I've spent a lot of time in L.A. over the years, mostly covering the Lakers and Clippers, but I was always a visitor, and this is being a temporary resident, and it's a lot different than I anticipated. It's been a while since I've moved, and I'd forgotten all about the minutia that comes with settling into a new place and learning how to get around. It's it's weird. I've been here less than a week and it feels as if I've been here a month. Not that I know the place like someone who's been here a month, but that I've been through everything that you would go through in the span of a month. Anyway, as a result of all that, this is now coming out with the all-star break behind us and the stretch run having begun. And because of that, I'm going to hit two topics in this episode. My latest views on load management, because that remains a topic uh, among NBA fans, and how it's shifted once again after a conversation with a former champion and now team executive, as well as a look at the debate about, yes, where Larry Bird belongs in the hierarchy of all-time great three-point shooters. As regular listeners know, I had a bit of a sea change in my thinking about load management not that long ago, and I talked about it here on the podcast. It inspired me to write a piece for FoxSports.com, for which I talked to a variety of players in the league, mostly veterans of eight years or more, so I could get their perspective on how the league has shifted. Because I believe over the last 10, 15 years, we've seen this shift. We've seen the introduction. It was the tail end of 
Tim Duncan and Manu Ginobili and Tony Parker. That's where it began with San Antonio and Greg Popovich. And that was essentially to get those guys to the finish line and in the playoffs because they'd had a history of breaking down during the regular season. It was also a very unique situation because they had all the experience in the world. And so they didn't need a lot of time together to get up to speed and to get in sync. And now it's been adopted, of course, by teams across the league, teams with brand new players, teams that have never been to the playoffs. And it's changed dramatically. So everybody's adopted it, essentially. And, and while the game is less physical in one respect, the bumping and grinding and holding of the 90s and early 2000s is no more. What players who experienced that and are still playing now told me was it has become more physical in a different way in terms of speed, change in direction, and overall demand for quick twitch reactions. And as a result, it, it is as or more demanding than the old style. It's just in a different way. And it's why we've had so many soft tissue injuries more than ever, despite all the advances in sports medicine, training, travel, sleep, uh, the general treatment of players and their health, and yes, load management. So I wanted to punch a hole in the idea that players today are softer and less committed to the game than previous generations. That's, that's what I did when I talked about it previously, because that's often the reason cited by critics of load management. Guys just aren't built the way they once were. When guys I respect, like Draymond Green and Mike Conley, guys who are dedicated to playing every minute they can and who I know love the game and love playing it, and those are some of the guys that I talk to, when they say the game is more demanding, just in a different way than before, I'm going to give it credence. But then I talk to someone else I respect, a former player who's now an executive in the league who was an integral part of a championship team. I'm not going to give his name, but... I saw his entire career from the time he was drafted and showed up at Pete Knowles' big man camp, uh, an annual summer event that is no more, but that I had the great fortune to attend every year to his uh, last season about six years ago, this, this player now executive that I'm referencing. He witnessed the change in the game from a half-court defensive-oriented grind, at least for teams with championship aspirations, to today's no-touch, fly-up-and-down, offense-dominated version. And it's his belief that not only are the injuries being suffered in today's game of the league's own making, but that it's going to be a challenge to solve the problem because the solution in the short term could very well lead to even more injuries. And the solution is rather easy in one respect. It's practice more, scrimmage more. He pointed out that teams rarely practice, which is true. And when they do, they very rarely scrimmage five on five. It's a lot of drills and individual work. Plays and sets are often walked through or done at half speed against no defense. I can testify to that. I was recently told Every team still does defensive shell drills, which I was a little surprised to hear. But 
Um, and those can be strenuous if done right, but even those are not the same as getting up and down the court, defending in transition, scrambling to defend, or making all the cuts and changes and directions necessary on offense, and then hurrying to the other end of the floor and flying around in similar fashion, only to do it reacting to moves being made as opposed to making those moves. When you're doing shell drills, you essentially know where you have to go. It's, it's a fairly static situation. When you scrimmage, all kinds of variables. Creativity. It's what makes it beautiful. But that said, it makes it unpredictable. And being able to react physically to unpredictable situations, that's what players face all the time in games. And that is what they're not preparing their bodies for when they're practicing, if they're not scrimmaging. And he believes that that is at the heart of today's issues. And I can't disagree with that. How do you prepare your body to do something without ever doing that thing? And you hear it all the time. There's being in shape and then there's being in game shape. It has been noted recently that players aren't the ones who came up with the idea of load management or incorporating rest days or it becoming popular. I mean, I think we, we can credit Greg Popovich with having invented it or introduced it and even labeling it. And it's true. Those, uh, the rest and the load management now being spread across the league, that's the brain child of the medical staff and trainers. I've had GMs and coaches cynically tell me in private that they believe the micromanagement of players' minutes and conditioning routines is as much an attempt by the player performance staff to justify their existence as anything else. That seems a bit harsh and unfair, but understand, GMs and coaches are dependent in keeping their jobs on the availability of players and performance of players. And the medical staff and trainers are the ones who now are tempering that availability. So it, it creates a conflict, an inherent conflict between GMs and coaches and players, or rather the medical staff. What I want to know is how much psychology have the player performance people studied? Because I think it would be important to know the psychological makeup of a player before telling him, hey, if you need a day off, just tell us. We'll get you one. Now, there are players you can trust with that leeway, and there are others that you can't. It's no different than being a coach or a team captain. You can't get the best out of everyone using the exact same approach or the exact same message. You have to understand who it is you're dealing with. There is no doubt that there are players in the league who abuse that leeway or interpret it in a different way as well as players who psychologically just aren't good at finding ways to adjust their game when they're not 100%. Vince Carter, for all his longevity, was one of those players. Chris Weber was as well. All indications are that among players in the league today, Anthony Davis fits that profile. What I'm having the hardest time reconciling is that apparently the players negotiated reductions in practice time into the collective bargaining agreement. Maybe they did it as a trade-off, knowing that they couldn't squeeze any more revenue out of the owner, so they went for things that they could consider as perks. 
This is this was player union leadership trying to give the appearance to the rank and file that they were actually accomplishing something, even though they weren't getting the rank and file more money. That's a subject for another day. Whatever the reason, how do you negotiate having to spend less time preparing for your job? Of all the things I'd want to be guaranteed in my job as a perk, that's not one of them. And yes, I know, players can work out on their own. Uh, they're, they're not held back by having to practice with the team or at the team facility or any of that. But let's be real. You either trust the organization and that they want you to get better and that they're going to help you get better or you don't. And if you don't, then that's a much, much bigger problem than whether you're practicing or you're not practicing, you're load managing or you're not load managing. Another contributing factor and the reason I'd argue you see a combination of star players needing low manage, uh, load management and still getting injured is that the game has become so star-centric. The game, the way the game has changed, I believe, not only in terms of getting up and down more, being more athletic, being more one-on-one -on -one oriented, is the way offenses are now designed to have the best players with the ball in their hands far more than stars in the past. Team concepts to create shots don't exist outside of maybe San Antonio and Golden State. And uh, maybe Boston, too. I'll throw them in there. And the stars aren't just orchestrating. They're on the attack. And this is where I understand building in games off for them. As much as fans who are buying tickets to one game and the expense of that might begrudge any star who doesn't play all 82 because it means they might miss their performance. I get that. But... Considering the load that they are carrying in particular, the way the game is played today, I understand building in games for them, building off games for them, even if they're not injured. The owners, keep in mind, are empowering their medical staffs because they're protecting their investment, which is their star players. It's another inherent conflict. The reason you buy tickets and you buy them in advance is because you want to see those stars. And the reason that they are being load managed as much or more than anybody else is because of their value as stars. The, the gargantuan contracts that they have now make it a lot harder for teams to adjust when those players aren't available. And because teams are built sort of top heavy with a couple of stars, it's changing slightly, but it's still two or three highly paid stars. And the rest, for the most part, are fill-in players. Well, you take one of those or two of those stars out and suddenly that team looks very, very different. And the end game remains to have everybody available and ready to go when the playoffs roll around. The part of the equation that's a lot more complex than the way it is treated in general is that every star player does not operate the same way. Not every star player is built the same way or is at the same point in his career. The way Luka Doncic attacks and does his work is a lot different than the way, say, Kevin Durant does or Steph Curry. Yet they all carry the same level of responsibility and they all seem to be treated the same way when it comes to load management. I'd believe a little bit more in 
the sophistication and science if I saw more variation and application in an independent way. I don't. I see sort of a across-the-board approach to what load management is. And these guys' games are just so different. I would think that some stars probably can handle playing 80-82 games, and others cannot. Doncic, for example, is far more methodical, far more comfortable bumping and grinding. He doesn't go by defenders as much as he looks to get them on his hip or bump them off to get the space he needs. And he has the size and weight and strength to do that. He, he almost plays more of a big man game, working his way to spots on the floor where he can be both a passing and scoring threat. He might do it kind of shifting between face-up to three-quartering to full-on back down, but still, that's the operation. He doesn't get there fast. Uh, so he can still be effective, as I see it, with a nagging injury because he's not relying on speed or multiple changes in direction. Steph Curry's different. A slight reduction in speed or agility and his window to get off a shot, even with his quick release, is a lot more challenging. The distance from which he shoots requires balance and kinetic energy created by his form. I know that's, that's a mouthful, but it is. Like the science, the body science of Steph Curry is a big part of the secret of why he's able to play the way that he does. An injury that compromises his balance or ability to coil and release his body without a second thought is enough to impact his accuracy, which we expect to be at a very high level and almost has to be for the Warriors to function the way that they do. He is experienced enough and mentally tough enough, and his shooting arsenal is varied enough at this point in his career that he can find ways to still be effective, to contribute, but it not necessarily reaches otherworldliness when it's a surprise when he misses. One of his counters is to do a lot of his work without the ball and rely on Draymond Green to see when he's created the necessary separation from his defender and to get him the ball for a shot on time. I see Kawhi Leonard, Chris Paul, and Klay Thompson all facing a similar challenge, different from Steph, but a similar challenge collectively in trying to adapt their games to their new realities as a result of their injuries. They are very similarly built. None of them is particularly flexible, and because of that, it's harder for them to compensate for the significant injuries they suffered. I would say that it's, it's a... So we, it's a, this is going to sound like a strange dynamic, but because of the way they're built and their strength and their stockiness, they generally don't suffer injuries or they can play through them and still be effective. But when they do get a major injury, it's also harder for them to come back from that and be the same because a significant injury is going to throw off the symmetry of their body. They're all very similarly built. None of them is particularly flexible. And because of that, it's harder for them to compensate for the significant injuries they've suffered. They were all once upon a time Ironmen, rarely getting injured, rarely missing games. I know that's hard to believe with Kawhi, but once upon a time it was true. And they've all clearly put in the work to be as conditioned and make their bodies as pliable as they can. But there's only so much anybody can do. 
Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. One major injury can throw off their biometrics in a way that it doesn't for, say, a player like KD. Or John Morant. Look at how Kevin Durant has come back from his torn Achilles. Now look at the way that Klay Thompson has come back. The shooting has come back. The mobility and agility has not. Klay, Chris, and Kawhi all remain extraordinarily strong, but none of them are nearly as explosive as they once were. And I think you could probably put LeBron James and Russell Westbrook in that camp as well, even though I don't know that LeBron has suffered a major injury. Russell Westbrook certainly has had a multitude of knee surgeries, and you can see it. You can see the effect of that. Straight line, they're still incredibly fast, especially for the relative sizes. But changes in direction are a different story. It's why they rely on spin moves more than ever to go past defenders, because a spin move doesn't put as much torque on the knees and hips to change direction as a violent crossover does. The advantage that LeBron and Kawhi have, and the reason they have still found a way to be very effective and efficient, is their overall size. Chris Paul is facing the biggest challenge, which is why it's not at all surprising that he's struggling the most. All of them are having to play a game that is more like what Luka has been doing his entire career. The thing is, they're not the only ones who have to adjust Their teammates do as well. Their coaches and how they're getting them the ball and where. And defenders in the NBA can quickly sense when an offensive player can't move quite the way he once could and they start to play him accordingly. They start to close that gap. They start to push them in certain directions. They force them into positions where they're uncomfortable knowing that they don't have the same explosiveness or movement or mobility. Now, concerning the question about Larry Bird and his place among three-point shooters, can I first say that I'm stunned by the disrespect that today's players show their predecessors? I'm sure some of that is because there are former players with very big platforms. Charles Barkley and Shaq immediately come to mind who have been publicly disparaging about today's players. But does that mean that all of today's players can now take shots at former great players, legends, who have never said anything publicly about today's game? And what bothers me is that the criticism in both directions is so often off base. It's why when I hear fans say only people who have played in the league should comment uh, comment on it, I have to ask, really? Have you heard? Some of the comments former and current NBA players have made. And that's not to say that members of the media don't mischaracterize what is going on at times. That their analysis doesn't have gaping holes born of ignorance or lack of understanding. There's plenty of people who are talking about the NBA who don't have a very 
good grasp on how it operates. I'm just saying, having played the game in no way assures that someone recognizes the nuances of the game. And nor should that be a prerequisite. Someone focused on doing what is necessary to keep their job in the league or execute their particular role doesn't have the time or inclination to assess the game in a big picture way. There's so many people in the league that are just, they know how to do their job. It doesn't mean they understand the big picture. And the variety of perspectives we've heard from players, current and former, on the issue of load management is a perfect example. The concept of what makes a player a great three-point shooter is another one. And this is all a result of a conversation that J.J. Redick and Chris Russo had on ESPN. And I'm disappointed in where they took the debate more than anything. It's why I'm addressing it here. Because they started arguing over an aspect of the game that really wasn't relevant to the topic. Russo, for those who aren't aware, declared that Bird, or people don't, aren't familiar with him, longtime New York radio legend, I would say. In any case, he's now appearing on ESPN on a semi-regular basis. He declared that Bird is in the conversation for greatest three-point shooter of all time because of all the meaningful threes that he made, timely and meaningful threes that he made in his career. And Redick took great exception to the idea because the numbers aren't there to back up a claim. Um, Percentage-wise, almost anything you look at it is not there to back up the idea that Bird was in the conversation for all-time great three-point shooter. Now, Russo took a hard and fatal turn by talking about the physicality of the game as a reason why Bird was a great three-point shooter, even if the numbers don't reflect it. He dismissed Reddick's perspective, furthermore, because he saw the games live and Reddick didn't. Another, I don't know, it's not where I'm going to go to try to win an argument. The conversation just went completely off the rails. And not because they disagreed as much, as, but, but just because both of their cases were so flawed. I started covering the league in 1993. So I can certainly speak to the physicality in the 90s and 2000s being greater than it, than it is today. And it's fairly obvious that hard fouls were far more acceptable in the 80s than they are today. No one's ever going to forget Kurt Rambis being clotheslined by Kevin McHale. The bad boy Pistons and their beating up of Michael Jordan and everybody else in the league, that started in the mid to late 80s. So rest assured, it wasn't just the 90s and 2000s. It was in the 80s as well. And that's not to say that the physicality or the respective physicalities of the game then and now doesn't have an influence on shooting. It does. It's just the way that Russo and Reddick approached it that didn't make a whole lot of sense. A good part of the game in the 80s and 90s and early 2000s involved players, guards and big men alike, bumping and grinding their way to get to the basket. 
the mentality was to get as close to the rim as possible, uh, not work the mathematics as we do today with three points being more than two and therefore you can shoot a lower percentage from beyond the arc and still score more points, be more efficient. But Russo didn't mention any of that. He then made himself sound completely out of touch by suggesting that Steph Curry lives at the free throw line, which is not true, at least not compared to some of the other stars in the league. Giannis Antetokounmpo lives at the free throw line because he doesn't hoist an extraordinary number of threes. He is proof that the game is not as physical around the rim as it used to be because the fouls he gets off of body bumps were simply not called in previous eras. The leaders in free throw attempts, Giannis, Joel Embiid, Luka Doncic, all have one one thing in common. They attack the rim. I think Shea Gilgis-Alexander is up there as well, as is Damian Lillard. Now, those guys shoot more threes, but they still attack the rim on a very regular basis. That's a big part of their game. More so part of their game than I would say than Steph's is. Now, if they wanted to debate something of merit, Redick and Russo, it would have been why so many more free throws were shot back in the day. The league-leading 76ers averaged 34 a game. This year's leaders are, and this I was surprised to find this out, the Houston Rockets, who average 24. Again, one of the reasons, they got a bunch of young guys who are always attacking the rim. And if we're looking for an explanation as to why there were more free throws taken then versus now, I'd say it's because defense is not played at nearly the same level and is not nearly as physical overall. Referees were constantly having to find that fine line between how much physicality was uh, allowed and how much was too much. Teams today don't present that quandary. They would rather concede a shot and hurry to the other end and try to score than risk a three or four point play. None of that though should be part of the conversation on whether or not Bird has a case for being the all-time greatest three-point shooter, as, except as an explanation for why he didn't shoot more of them. Basically an out, saying, we'll never really know how great Bird could have been as a three-point shooter. His job was to get the ball to Robert Parrish or Kevin McHale if they had position near the rim. The Celtics in 1986, for whatever it's worth, and I think that was the year that, that Russo referenced for whatever reason, they shot a relatively low number of free throws in the league. Bird's career free throw attempts average is actually only slightly better than Steph's. He averaged five, and Steph, as of right now, is averaging 4.3. Now, Bird was more open from range because the mentality then was to give up jumpers over allowing someone to get to the rim. And I might even argue that it was more emphasized not to foul jump shooters. It's a little harder today because the rules really have uh, encouraged guys to shoot jumpers. They benefited shooters. The whole giving them landing space and all of that around the three-point line, that didn't exist back in the day. Didn't exist in the 90s. Bruce Bowen was obviously one of the first 
to incorporate that into defense, make a player uneasy because he wasn't sure where he was going to land. The defender's feet were going to be underneath him. But none of that is how the game is played today. Now, players do try to stay attached to players on the rim more now or run them off the three-point line. But that doesn't make the game more physical or suggest that Bird was a great shooter because he was wide open or that he had easier shots than Steph has today. Yet Reddit got sucked into that rabbit hole and suggested that Steph Curry is manhandled in today's game. I mean, that's the word he used. Marcus Smart manhandles Steph Curry and suggested that there's more manhandling going on in today's game than in Bird's era, which is just amusing. Uh, if it appears that defenders are more physical with Steph, it's because he's 6'3 and 190 pounds. Larry was 6'9 and 220, and the worst thing you could do was to get up on him because he was good at spinning off or around that contact, scoring the bucket and drawing the foul. Steph can't do any of that. He needs space to change direction, to get a shot up and off. And there's a lot more, I sense there's a lot more hand fighting going on where offensive players are trying to create that contact. So it's not just defenders mugging uh, offensive players. That's not happening. A defender can bother Steph a lot more easily than one could Bird. And you did it with Bird at your own peril because he could handle that, that physicality. You were kind of better off on him not knowing exactly where you were. Because if he could feel you, then he could play off of you. And I would never try to make the case that Larry Bird is the greatest three-point shooter of all time. It just can't. That's a fool's errand. Because it was such a small part of his overall game. It almost diminishes what he was. But I also wouldn't try to suggest that if he played today he wouldn't have been able to go toe-to-toe with Steph for that title. Or that it would be his record, not Ray Allen's, that Steph passed last season. Bird's form was lock-solid, as was his ability to create and knock down a three when it was needed, no matter how tightly guarded he was. It was second to none in that. Hand in his face, making a big shot, nobody better. And there's nothing about Bird's dedication to his craft, his footwork, or his understanding of the game that dissuades me from believing that if he played in today's three-point happy era, that he wouldn't be as prolific or capable of scoring from deep as Steph Curry is. And I assure you that with, with today's sports medicine and technology and conveniences, he would have had a much longer career. He simply would have done what he does in a different way using that release from above his head and his 6'9 height to get whatever shot he wanted. Far different than how Steph does it. What I'm most surprised by is that a shooting technician like Redick wouldn't see or acknowledge that. He was, Redick was a shorter version of Bird in that he used his guile and understanding of angles and timing to be a dangerous three-point shooter. He just wasn't 6'9". He didn't have Bird's release, and he didn't have any of the other skills that made the three-point shot an accessory rather than a staple in Bird's day. But I also don't know why anyone would look at Russo as an expert on the NBA 
or three-point shooting. If you've listened to his radio show, he's never been particularly fond of the NBA, has never followed it all that closely. His game, first and foremost, is baseball. That's why he has, has had a show on the MLB network for years. That's his first love, first and foremost, followed closely by tennis. Maybe I've got the order wrong, but those two by far are at the top of the list. I would never, ever look to him for insight on the NBA, no matter how many games he saw in person in the 80s. And maybe Reddick should have understood that from the beginning and not allowed Russo to set the pace. I mean, this is the genius. This is why he's a radio legend. Because in spite of not being the expert, in spite of not really knowing what he's talking about, he led Reddick around in that conversation like he was on a leash. All right, that does it for this episode of On the Ball on the United Wecast Network. Please rate and review the show on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Next episode, I don't, I'm not sure what's coming. Uh, I just know that it will be coming sooner because now that I'm settled in down in my new place in LA uh, and I'm getting a better feel of how to get around, I will have more time to devote to the podcast. So in the meantime, as always, thanks for listening. sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusion Apply. See site for details.